So here's the deal. These last few episodes, I think I got a little too irreverent. Maybe push the envelope a little bit. I got a little bit crazy. Please forgive me. I'm only human. But it does beg the question. If you have a soul, a pulse, or any moral fiber, you have to wonder at times, where are we headed? Where are the political chess masters taking us as a society? And how can the average man or woman take in political information on the left and the right and not want to completely check out across the board? I shake my head at Mitch McConnell as much as I scratch my head looking at Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Hope Couture on the pages of GQ. As our friend Tony Soprano once pontificated, whatever happened to the strong, silent types? Anxiety attacks are legitimate psychiatric emergencies. Suppose you were driving and you passed out. Let me tell you something. Nowadays, everybody's got to go to shrinks and counselors and go on Sally Jesse Raphael and talk about their problems. Whatever happened to Gary Cooper? The strong, silent type. That was an American. He wasn't in touch with his feelings. He just did what he had to do. See, see what they didn't know was once they got Gary Cooper in touch with his feelings, that they wouldn't be able to shut him up. And then it's dysfunction this, and dysfunction that, and dysfunction my fungal. Each week, for me, the news, the intelligence, the overwhelming level of stupidity inside politics seems to reach new heights new level of absurdity. Whereas a country, nothing surprises anyone anymore about anything. That has to be scaring you as much as it's scaring me, right? Each week in order to bring you a new podcast and perspective, my process is to ingest as much of this bullshit as humanly possible so that I can personally distill it down and try and make some sense of it. Now, As I write this and speak it, for some reason, Rachel Maddow comes to mind, or Chris Cuomo, or or even that preppy fuck, Tucker Carlson, where every night on cable television, they were or are offered the opportunity to speak their minds, and somehow also give insight. But herein lies the rub. They work for the largest news organizations on the planet backed by billions, and streamed and broadcast into living rooms and offices across our zany country. So what they say matters. It moves opinions. It influences dialogue. And if we are being honest, it feeds the crazies on the left and on the right. CNN and Fox, they need to stop calling themselves a fucking news network. They need to call themselves an entertainment destination. I hope our country at this point understands that fundamental point and further, at some point, hopefully soon, some genius in technology will create a different version of the news based within truth, not opinions. But without further to do, it really is a do. Let's get started. Maggie Hamerin has a new book coming out. It's called Confidence Man, The Making of Donald Trump and the breaking of America. Uh, this might be weighing on the brain of Donald Trump because he's got other things he's worrying about, but he says, here we go again. Another fake book is out. 
This one, supposedly very boring and stale by self-appointed head case. Uh, failing unfunded liability, New York Times writer Maggie Hagerman. Hagerman, he says, the G. Uh, in it, she tells many made up stories with zero fact checking or confirmation by anyone who would know, like me. Listen to that again. She tells many made up stories with zero fact checking or confirmation by anyone who would know, like me. <laughs> Remember that. In one case, she lies about me wanting to fire my daughter Ivanka and Jared. Wrong, pure fiction, never even crossed my mind. Just have to fight troublemaking creeps like Maggie and all the rest. Pause for one second here, you guys, because uh, some people wondered if he purposely misspelled Hagerman and put a G rather than Haberman. Uh, if he was, he would have quoted it or he would have uh, capitalized it all because he wants to make sure you guys know when he's saying something so clever. Maggie Haberman has covered him for six years, now almost seven years, and is arguably the top reporter covering him at the New York Times. We constantly talk about Sat down for an interview with her three times. She wrote a book about him. He still doesn't know her name. He says Hagerman <laughs> instead of Haberman. I mean, like it's a if it was a slip up once, we've you've seen us say a thousand times, even for the right wing, oh, it's a slip up, it's no big deal. For people we don't agree with, it's a slip up, it's no big deal, right? But this one, how do you not know her name? You talked to her all those times. He just clinical. He doesn't care about anything that isn't Donald J. Trump. So he doesn't even pay attention. He's got the mind of a, like a little flea. Within Trump land, we can honestly say that there have been more books on this guy than all of the books written on World War One and Two combined. But something that caught my attention this week is the release of a book written by New York Times journalist Maggie Haberman, appropriately called Confidence Man, The Making of Donald Trump and the Breaking of America. In anticipation of this release, Haberman wrote an article for that fancy publication, The Atlantic, which for some reason, when I have a copy of that magazine, I just feel smarter. This is an article that I want to use inside this episode because Maggie has a special place in Trump's heart. Although she works for the New York Times, which Trump hates, for a time, Maggie was a journalist at the New York Daily News and New York Post both papers that Trump utilized throughout his career and myth building. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I feel like I know you. I feel like I know you far better than I know you uh, because I uh, read you all the time. You have known Donald Trump for years. You have covered him uh, back in his real estate days. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask about last night. He talks a lot about unity and then at the same time says very divisive things. Do you think he's aware of the contradictions that exist when he speaks? No. Okay. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> and if, I can go into depth about that if you'd like. Look, I mean, A, I don't think he knows, and B, I don't think he cares. I yes. mean, one of the things that he did during the campaign, his particular talent was seeming to take both sides of an issue, sometimes in the same sentence. Because you've covered him for so long, mm -hmm. uh, it does seem like he likes you, and at times, and then at other times does not like you, but you certainly have a relationship with him that provides you a decent amount of access, and is it true that he has uh, reached out to sort of criticize your work at times and, and gone so far as to sort of rate it? Um, there was one incident in particular, and he was giving me a very hard time about a number of stories, and he kept saying something to the effect of, you never write fairly about me, and, da -da -da, and I reminded him of a story I had done about Mar-a-Lago that he had thanked me for, um, which, to be clear, was not the goal of the story. And, um, and then he, he said, oh, that's right. And I think he said, I think that was about an eight or something like that. And it was not, that's not normally what you hear in response. But no, I mean, look, I've gotten the angry reaction. I've gotten the 
Sharpie notes that an aide will take a picture of and send you. And then I've gotten phone calls thanking me for a certain story. And from each moment to the next, it's, it's like the other one didn't happen. The title of the book says a lot, The Breaking of America. Can you imagine that the masses, or let's say at least 50% of this great country, has allowed Donnie Trump to possibly pull the best modern-day version of Kaiser Sose I've ever seen? Nobody ever knew him or saw anybody that ever worked directly for him. But to hear Kobayashi tell it, anybody could have worked for Sose. You never knew. That was his power. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Maggie opens the Atlantic article with a great passage. She quotes Trump. Can you believe these are my customers? Donald Trump once asked while surveying the crowd in the Taj Mahal casino's poker room. Look at those losers, he said to his consultant Tom O'Neill of people spending money on the floor of the Trump Plaza Casino. Visiting the Iowa State Fair as a presidential candidate in 2015, he was astounded that locals fell in line to support him because of a few free rides in his branded helicopter. In the White House, he was sometimes stunned at his own backers' fervor, telling aides, they're fucking crazy. Yet, they loved him and wanted to own a piece of him. And that was what mattered most. Now with this passage, do people forget that Donnie Trump grew up in Queens in New York City in the 80s? I'm sure if you asked most people in the middle of the country what they think of New Yorkers, they most likely would call you a fucking asshole, rude, entitled, pompous, gruff. The list continues, yet, with the Teflon Don. All these qualities to Billy Bob and Judy in Kansas have somehow evaporated. It's truly fascinating. Part of the Trump phenomenon is the more he's called a bigot or a fascist on account of his reactionary comments, the more support for him hardens. But perhaps it's kind of pointless what you choose to call him unless you address the underlying reasons as to why people support him in the first place. He expresses their their anger, their frustration, their fear that the kind of life that they wish they could live is threatened. He's basically saying, I'm going to say what I want to say, and if you don't like it, too bad. I don't care, and neither do my supporters. Local councillor Mark Scott is no Trump supporter himself, but understands what people like about him. They're not saying, I'm going to vote for Donald Trump. I just like what Donald Trump has to say. Donald Trump doesn't feel like an outsider, more an enfant terrible born of what some would say is a generation of conservative politics not afraid to stoke the fear of government and play on America's weakness in the world. He is an exaggerated version of the most antagonistic and fear-mongering strategies of conservatives in the United States over the last 30 or 40 years. In another interesting passage, Haberman hammers home my point in a much more eloquent way. Here it is. The New York from which Trump emerged was its own morass of corruption and dysfunction, 
stretching from seats of executive power to portions of the media to the real estate industry in which his family found its wealth. The world of New York developers was filled with shady figures and rife with backbiting and financial knife fighting. Sound familiar? Engaging with them was often the cost of doing business, but Trump nevertheless stood out to the journalists covering him as particularly brazen. Haberman writes, I found myself on the receiving end of the two types of behavior Donald Trump exhibits toward reporters. His relentless desire to hold the media's gaze and his poison pen notes and angry statements in response to coverage. I guess we all like to think we are in our own video game and in this game we want to be the hero or maybe at times the villain. For Trump, it's obvious that in playing his video game, the world is his stage and his mannerisms and his sheer personality has altered the fabric of American culture and politics for better or worse. But I keep asking the question to everyone and I don't understand why. Why has Trump become a shaman for millions of Americans? Where did we go wrong here, guys? This November, if there is not a coalition of independents who love America, the we, the real people, people like me, I'm from Philadelphia. I am a strict originalist about what they wrote down at Fifth and Chestnut Street. I do not like the idea of people thinking America belongs to any one person or group. I've read the words. I know what the American experiment truly is. It's a republic if we can keep it as my fellow citizen Benjamin Franklin said. Mm -hmm. My problem is these people don't seem to understand that a republic is a democracy in which the rights of the minority are protected. They view this as a dictatorship that will give them what they want. And if they don't get what they want, they will dismantle the rest. This November will be the defining moment whether the American experiment ends in practice, not in theory. In Maggie's interviews and writing, she has a way of humanizing Trump in a way I haven't seen in other political coverage. It almost makes you like the guy. He reminds me again of a guy talking at a deli in between ordering an Italian hero who wants to pontificate on things, talk to you tough, let you know where he stands. Now, there is something endearing about that. Almost familiar. This next passage in Haberman's writing is what caught my attention. Trump's view of strength never changes, regardless of the context, flattening all situations so they appear the same. He used identical language, and this is in quotes, with an iron fist when describing how China's president dealt with his country. Haberman says, I asked him if he had expected the presidency to function the same way. Rather, Trump said that is how he thought congressional leaders would act on his behalf. Well, I figured that the Mitch McConnells would be like him in the sense of strength. There are plenty of factual problems with this criticism. In fact, McConnell had kept Republican senators in line over and over to advance Trump's policy and personnel concerns. And generally, 
protected his political standing as the leader of the Republican Party. Nevertheless, Trump said to me in another session, using his favorite new nickname for McConnell, the old crow's a piece of shit. Just think about this dichotomy. It's so fucked up. These politicians at the end of the day are afraid of Trump's base, even here in 2022. He almost has risen as a version of a mythic Greek god or Roman emperor who can now use his power and influence from his palace at Mar-a-Lago. Republicans, uh, I think, are terrified about Trump um, jumping down their throats. And uh, look, this is part of the transition of the Republican Party away from what you know Lisa and Brendan and I remember it to be about 10, 15 years ago to being controlled by MAGA Republicans, where it's all about conspiracy theories, lies, and and uh, uh, you know, and, and extreme efforts to control power. And I think that with Trump, you saw Trump come out on it today. I think the last thing a lot of these Republicans want in these places that are competitive, even though they may disagree with him, is to get in a fight with him. And so that's what I think you saw. You saw some of the, you know, what has become like sort of a, a lack of courage within the Republican Party to stand up to Trump and they fell in line. The continued fascination on the left with Trump is starting to become myopic and elitist. It's almost as if all these books are think pieces on how this guy conquered us. And I think Maggie, for whatever reason, gets the most out of Trump in a candid way. This next quote is my favorite of the whole Atlantic article. As it really sums up for me this idea of like a rich guy's club in such a unique way. The quote is as follows. The question I get asked more than any other question, if you had to do it again, would you have done it? Trump said of running for president. The answer is yeah, I think so. Because here's the way I look at it. I have so many rich friends and nobody knows who they are. He then went on to talk about how much easier his life would have been had he not run. Yet, there it was, reflecting on the meaning of having been president of the United States, his first impulse was not to mention public service or what he felt he'd accomplished, only that it appeared to be a vehicle for fame, and that many experiences were only worth having if someone else envied them. Brilliant. Fucking classic. It reminds me of what Bill Simmons, the basketball guru, talked about recently on his podcast about owning an NBA basketball team. He gave the example of the Silicon Valley nobody that bought the Golden State Warriors, a guy by the name of Joe Lacob. Prior to owning the Warriors, he was a billionaire, but he had no juice. Now, he sits courtside with Tim Cook and Johnny Ive of Apple probably gets any meeting he wants. He's the man in the NBA. That is rich guy shit. It makes sense. But with Trump, this is the highest office in the land. And I mean, fuck me. It shouldn't be about fame. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? It's like incredible. Donald Trump is a daily dose of exaggeration, but not about one thing the size and fervor of his following. Wow, what a crowd! All across America, they line up for hours. 
waiting for the show. I got about two hours sleep. <laughs> we met Courtney Modisett yes, at 6.30 a.m. in Westfield, Indiana, proudly perched outside the door for a 7 p.m. Trump event. What possessed you to come here 12 and a half hours early for the Trump rally? Well, my kids are going to remember this. Their kids are going to remember this. And I grew up with my family loving Trump. Modisette is like many Trump voters we met in dozens of interviews. Until Trump came along, politics meant next to nothing. Unfortunately, this is sad to say, this is the first time that I voted. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. Trump's voice has been raucous, caustic, insulting, and divisive. Cindy Lyons is from Jackson, Mississippi. Well, Donald Trump has a straightforward way that he communicates. Has he ever spoke so plainly that you kind of cringed? I understand what's behind what he's saying. Richard Matkey is from Londonderry, New Hampshire. He's not a dummy, like everybody seems to think. You don't make a billion dollars being an idiot. <laughs> so he, uh, I, I think he's, he's smart enough to run the country. They're $5 or 3 for $10. Oh, okay. Trump is also the voice of a part of America that's given up on the two parties and the system, one that smells corruption everywhere, a long-lost and so-called silent majority that is buying the political equivalent of a lottery ticket. They're all part of the same deal, man. You know, it's hold your nose and pull the lever. Trump voters have had enough of holding their nose. As we move forward here at Trump Mafia headquarters, there has to come a time when we move on. Hopefully the news cycle moves on. The writers stop obsessing. Or, as a country, there's a pivotal moment that maybe changes the last eight years and the effects it's had on politics. But maybe that never happens. And I can't say I have hope because in our closing paragraph, Maggie writes something telling, something vastly insightful. Here it is. The reality is, is that Trump treats everyone like they are his psychiatrists, reporters, government aides, and members of Congress, friends, and pseudo friends, and rally attendees, and White House staff and customers. They all present a chance for him to vent or test reactions or gauge how his statements are playing or discover how he is feeling. He works things out in real time in front of all of us. Along the way, he reoriented an entire country to react to his moods and emotions. I spent four years of his presidency getting asked by people to decipher why he was doing what he was doing. Truth is, ultimately, almost no one really knows him. Some know him better than others, but he is often simply, purely opaque, permitting people to read meaning and depth into every action, no matter how empty they might be. See, what scares me, it keeps me up at night, is maybe old Donnie boy all his fucked up flaws and his racist, myopic, and 
manipulative bullshit. It's really just a house of mirrors of where we're at currently. A time with no soul, no compass, no moral fiber, no profound courage. We lost that a long time ago. And leaders in Washington, D.C. are relics. They won't lead us into the future. They're only leading us into the dystopia. I'm sick and tired.